This is the Watercooler Podcast number 50, coming to you from the Menzies Research Centre in Sydney. Hello, I'm Nick Cater, Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. Welcome to the first of two Watercooler Podcasts recorded in Sydney in late December 2020 on the occasion of the 8th John Howard Lecture. The lecturer is John Anderson, a former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia, now best known to millions around the world for his YouTube and podcast interview series with some of the greatest brains on the planet. The title of his speech is Disunity is Death. He explores the corrosive influence of identity politics and the grim ideology behind it. In the second of these podcasts, we'll be listening to the post-lecture discussion between Anderson and John Howard. But we begin with the lecture itself, introduced by the man in whose honour the speech is named, Australia's 25th Prime Minister, John Howard. Well, thank you very much, Nick, to Paul Espy, the chairman of the Menzies Research Centre, to John and Julia Anderson, uh, to Philip Ruddock and other former colleagues, I'm really delighted to be here tonight uh, in association with and in friendship with my former deputy and close colleague, John Anderson. I said on the night of the 2004 election, and that was the last one that my government won, of course, (laughs) uh, we sort of fell by the wayside in 2007. I said on that occasion that uh, I had not met a more honourable person in public life than John Anderson. Uh, He was more than just a colleague and friend. He was a trusted partnership in the government of this country for a very long period of time. And it's worth remembering that at his um, retirement press conference, Robert Gordon Menzies was asked what were the two achievements of which he was most proud in the time that he'd been Prime Minister. And the one that he nominated that is relevant tonight is the coalition between the Liberal Party and the then Country Party, later the National Country Party and then the National Party. The partnership between Menzies and Fadden and then Menzies and McEwen was a template for the partnership between Malcolm Fraser and Doug Anthony and was also the guiding light to the partnership that I had first with Tim Fisher, then for a very long period of time with John Anderson and then finally with Mark Vale. We had our differences as you always do in partnerships, but there was always total trust between the two parties. We had grown closer together on economic policy by the time that my government came to power. We had some differences of emphasis. Occasionally, Liberals would grumble about special arrangements being made for particular parts of Australia, and I would say to them, why not? And they didn't really have an answer for that. But fundamentally, Uh, There was such deep respect between the two parties that we solved problems together. And, of course, the testament to that was that we 
stayed in office for almost 12 years and we got back into office fairly quickly after that. Um, there may have been the odd contribution from the other side of politics to that <laughs> phenomenon, but whatever it was and the partnership between Warren Truss and Tony Abbott and now the partnership between uh, Scott Morrison and Michael McCormack follows in that very long tradition. But tonight I particularly honour my close friend, uh, former Deputy Prime Minister and somebody who's made a magnificent contribution to public life and has carried it on. I think he's, uh, uh, his online presentations are fantastic. Uh, he's a person who's got a very deep commitment to what are the important social values of our society which transcend political differences. He's committed to a better Australia in the best sense of that word. And of course he is at heart uh, a farmer, a fifth generation wheat grower, and he's very proud of the fact that uh, one of his sons is now running the property, although they th I think they let mum and dad uh, reside there. Uh, uh, and uh, I think mum and dad are very pleased about that. But I couldn't be happier uh, tonight in introducing my dear friend John Anderson to deliver the Howard Lecture. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> And I couldn't be more honoured to have the opportunity. But uh, to Paul Espy uh, and uh, to Nick Cater, uh, to Philip Ruddock, uh, I think John Sharp is watching on tonight elsewhere. You'll forgive me if I also uh, acknowledge Heather Henderson, uh, who I think is with us tonight as well in this new virtual world, daughter, of course, of Robert Menzies, for which this magnificent institution is named. Uh, she's lost none of her fighting spirit. I, in a very brief uh, toast to the future uh, of my own party in Canberra last week that she was kindly at, it was the unveiling of a statue of, uh, of uh, Blackjack McEwen. Uh, and I was uh, able to say a few words uh, and propose a toast to the future of my own party. I'm sure you'd all join me in that as well. Um, <laughs> and. Uh, I uh, slightly misquoted uh, the book that, that she, uh, has, I think, blessed us with when I said that uh, she had done us a great service by being responsible for the launching of the book Letters uh, from My Father. Clear as a bell out came, Letters to My Daughter. Uh, but it was a magnificent book and I thoroughly recommend it. So what a fantastic person she is. Uh, and. Uh, it's great to think that she's joining us tonight out of her commitment really to good public policy as well as to her friends in the Liberal Party and the friends of the Liberal Party. Uh, but thank you, Nick, in particular. I'll say a bit more about the importance of Menzies and supporting Menzies later on. But I do want to thank you again for having me to speak here tonight. Uh, John, uh, you're right. Our children do tolerate us on the place. Um, particularly at harvest time. So you see, we've escaped the harvest. We had one for the first one since 2016. Uh, and I'm the bloke, you see, who gets to drive the old wheat trucks, carting the wheat out of the paddocks. And of course, it's been stinking hot. It's got a bit cold in the last few days, but really hot. It's dry, dusty work. Uh, and it's a family effort, and everybody else seems to find a sealed, silent, air-conditioned cabin, including my wife, who often drives the chaser bin, picking up the wheat. Uh, my daughter-in-law drives a combine harvester because they're better than the blokes. They're so gentle on those massive machines, they smash them up less. And at the end of the day, I will say something like, oh, gee, 
It's pretty hot, isn't it? It's been a shocking day. And they'll look at me and say, oh, was it? <laughs> As they, uh, you know, emerge clean and fresh out of these machines that look after them so well. John, thank you very much for your kind words. I appreciate them hugely. I particularly appreciate what you had to say about trust. The breakdown of trust is an enormous threat to our society and to our freedoms. Because when we feel that we can't trust those around us to do what they ought to do without coercion, we go for the rule book. And we're bound up in more and more and more legislation because we no longer assume that enough of those around us will do the right thing. And that very uh, remarkable book of yours, many books uh, I recommend them, this is one of you haven't read it, um, something about Lazarus. <laughs> you had a picture of the two of us and you said the comment you had uh, was to the effect that we trusted each other completely. And that to me was gold and meant a huge amount and still does. I often pinch myself and say was I really so fortunate as to have served with two men of the character and ability uh, and really all-round solidarity and character as Peter Costello and John Howard in what I you won't be surprised to hear me say this, still believe was a very good government. It was an enormous honour. Two men who passionately believed in the importance of good public policy for the nation that they and I and you are also deeply committed to. John, I, uh, it fell to me this year to be the raconteur in Canberra at the National Archives uh, of Australia as they prepare uh, for the release of the 2000 Cabinet Papers. Uh, on January 1. And the deal is that if quite a few select members of the media uh, are given uh, embargoed copies. There's an official historian who has said nice things, I think I can say that much, about the, the depth and capability of the government that you headed up, uh, which is very nice. A couple of things she takes issue with, which I dare say you'll learn about on the 1st of January. But uh, I was thinking of you. Uh, that was one of the year of the Olympics, of course. And amongst other things, we had quite a debate in Cabinet, and I think I can say this now, about how to protect the name of a man that uh, most of us revere, you do in particular, Donald Bradman. Everybody wanted to attach their name to what a tacky piece of um, merchandise it was that they wanted to sell during the Olympics and what have you, and we had quite a discussion about it. And I got to thinking, and I just had to wander through the Bradman Museum only a few weeks before that, of the way in which uh, John... Um, uh, you reflected so well the qualities that we remember him from, for quite apart from his, his sportsmanship, uh, in that he was so modest in victory, gracious in, in defeat, but there was something else. Bradman was astonishingly intentional and determined to pursue whatever it was in his life that he was focused on at any given time. And that reminded me of you as well, John. Now, John Howard understood deeply that a major task for a democratic leader is to foster unity and a common sense of purpose and destiny wherever possible amongst the people being led. The nation in the end is no more and no less than the sum total of the individuals that make it up. And leading a democratic nation forward is only possible to the extent that trust and cooperation and a commitment to the broader good as well as one's own self-interest are extant in the people. And John was a leader who clearly held a strong set of convictions about where he felt the country should be going. He was able to convey that vision through skilled and patient advocacy 
and he had about him the personal qualities necessary to persuade people to work with him to achieve those ends. He was also known to express the view that the things that unite us are far stronger and more durable and enduring than the things which divide us. Now I think that all of us here tonight in one form or another would share with him a deep love of liberal democracy which secures the four freedoms that Franklin Roosevelt and our own Bob Menzies, notably from both sides of the centre divide or from each side of it, spoke of. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want and freedom from fear. The vigorous pursuit and defence of these freedoms unquestionably aids the journey towards a flourishing and harmonious society and indeed surely constitutes the reasons that so many have been attracted to the West itself and to the Western model. Yet, my friends, I think we all share a deep concern that those elites who hold the bulk of the microphones and it seems the cultural heft in the West today seem determined to divide us, not unite us, at every possible turn. We are, it seems, at war with one another. Men versus women, race versus race, generation against generation. David Brooks, author of another book I would recommend if you've not read it, The Road to Character, describes the West as more polarised, tribalised and distrustful than ever. And he makes the powerful argument that these now constitute our primary political problem because they make it increasingly difficult to develop and then implement good public policy on all the major challenges that confront us. Many people point to the advent of social media and its power in the modern political pantheon, but in reality, of course, it serves mainly as an amplifier for these underlying attitudes and the way in which people behave. A very powerful amplifier, but not so much the core problem as one which provides a means for ever louder megaphones. Once then, the obstacles to reform and progress were essentially political, where people argued out policies on the basis of evidence and facts and reason, often with great heat, but nonetheless, uh, on reasonably rational grounds, whereas today they are increasingly cultural. Appeals to the common or greater good based on evidence and reasoned debate fall foul of emotion, the outright denial of evidence all too often, and an unprecedented degree of tribalism. Indeed, I'd put it to you that the very laws of this land now that we live in reflect this new tribalism. The never-ending plethora of human rights law and machinery that started in the Whitlam era, well-intentioned as some of it might have been, in reality encourages us to a selfish approach to competing and often conflictual claims to our rights all too often at the expense of someone else. As Salvador Babonis has said in his book, The New Authoritarianism, the right to pursue happiness has somehow transitioned into a right to be happy. And the further we go down the convoluted and legalistic rights-based approach, the more complexities we create and the less we see 
of simple, decent respect for one another and the right to our beliefs, our values and our own conscience. All too often now, self-assured technocrats, the expert class that so clearly think they know what is good for us, decide whose rights will prevail when they compete and all too often the law and the courts will fall into line. That respect for one another, even when it has been, for example, simply the begrudging acknowledgement that that neighbour of mine down there is a bit quirky, but he's entitled to his views, even though I don't like them, has been critical to the success of the Western model of rubbing along. Yet a frightening new authoritarianism, to quote Babani's, that rejects our traditional approach to individual dignity and freedom is taking hold. Neil Ferguson, the eminent economic historian, believes that we are living through the end of 500 years of Western ascendancy. He sees the three greatest threats to the West as being in ascending order, ascending order, radical Islam, the possibility of miscalculation between the reigning superpower and the rising superpower, but most critically, the greatest as being the rejection of the history and legitimacy of our own culture. And he observes that if we could recover our own sense of ballast and balance, those other issues would be a very great deal easier to deal with. Now Marx famously observed that a people cut off from their history are easily persuaded. Yet we have ensured that we no longer, and our children no longer, understand our own cultural roots. We deny our past achievements, and we overstate and misrepresent our past mistakes to suit modern narratives and modern agendas, rather than the truth. And we have lost faith in ourselves at the very time in which those who wish us ill are full of all conviction as Yates had it. Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay have published a book which I want to suggest to you should be on everyone's Christmas reading list called Cynical Theories. Some of you may have seen it. You can also find a conversation I held with these two people uh, on uh, my website. Uh, it went up this afternoon. They are two of the three people who wrote 20 spoof academic papers and put them out to periodicals. And you may recall that 11 of them were published. Uh, the one that caught my imagination, if not fancy, was the one that was entitled, What We Can Learn About Rape Culture by Observing Canines in Public Places. <laughs> and it was published in a serious journal. <laughs> but these two, two of the remarkable three people have put this book together. Uh, Stephen Pinker, no less has written on, of it, many people are nonplussed by the surge of wokery, social justice welfare, intersectionality, and identity politics that have spilled out of academia and inundated other spheres of life. Where did it come from? What ideas are behind it? This book exposes the surprisingly shallow intellectual roots of the movement that appear to be engulfing our culture. Have you heard that language is violent and that science is sexist? or been told that being obese is healthy, that there is no such thing as biological sex, or that only white people can be racist. Are you confused by these ideas, and do you wonder how they have managed so quickly to challenge the very logic 
of Western society. I commend it to you. And here's a riddle for you. What exactly is intersectionality? And how did we as taxpayers come to spend four and a half million dollars trying to establish whether or not the campus of the University of Sydney was a safe place for people of intersectionality? I'm not going to try and answer it for you. I just pose the question. But the authors who unpack critical theory very carefully reveal just how frighteningly pervasive this whole concept or set of concepts has become. They write that we've reached a point in history where the liberalism and modernity at the heart of Western civilization are at great risk on the level of the ideas that have sustained us. The academic doctrines known as critical theory underpin what we've come to call identity politics. And those who have come to see the true nature of the world, enlightened by critical theory, are said to have been awakened, or taking from the African-American vernacular, woke. So there you go, that's where it comes from. According to Pluckrose and Lindsay, Postmodernism, which ran its course, and critical theory, which in a sense follows in its footsteps, rejected Christianity and Marxism and all other great political philosophies, but it also rejects science, reason, and the pillars of post-enlightenment democracy. The same, of course, can be said for wokeism which is merely the popularisation of the messages of postmodernism and critical theory, preached, as many of you may have suspected if you had been watching these things in universities very widely over the last generation. It's now everywhere and it's frighteningly persuasive in our schools, in our universities, our media, the entertainment centre, dare I say it, of someone from the bush in many of our boardrooms. And it is plainly affecting our politics in very real ways. Identity politics, based as it is on critical theory, tries, as Lindsay and Pluckrose put it, to dismantle structures and institutions and revolutionise on a cultural level. It tends to believe that society is organised into systems of power and dominance. Furthermore, it actually openly condemns liberal democracy with all of its rights and freedoms as an elaborate and well-disguised way of oppressing women and racial and cultural and sexual minorities. How on earth do we understand it? Can I say to you, I don't find it easy. But there are many excellent minds that have grappled with it and written about it. And I can say this to you, I think, quite safely. There are four identical or identifiable features that help us understand this. Firstly, this movement sees the basic unit of analysis not as the individual, as liberalism has it, or economic class, as Marxism has it, but in the newer identities of race, of gender, and of sexuality. In several respects, the shift away from the individual to the collective isn't just academic in its implications. We must remember that principally the modern liberal democratic order is premised on the notion of the dignity of the individual, so that individual rights should only be interfered with in situations of clear 
and present danger. If you haven't been thinking about that quite a bit this year, you should have been. This is entirely alien to historical political arrangements that see society not in terms of individuals, but in terms of one or other of various class masses. The ultimate object of state protection is the collective, which means that individual rights are either non-existent or defined wholly in terms of what is deemed by the political elites of the day in whatever system it is as being in the interests of the whole, if not narrowly the party. Now here's the point. Inevitably in such societies individual rights are always deemed to be in tension with the collective. Witness the fate of free speech, religious liberty, freedom of association, the freedom not to associate, and economic liberty in every society that has ever existed that privileged the collective over the individual. History, I put it to you, is our best guide here. A far better teacher than philosophy and many of the, the governmental and political courses I suspect that are run in our educational institutions. Can I just add that when you start to talk about individuals, well-meaning people often say, that sounds selfish. And to those who want to say that, I just remind them that uh, many powerful speakers, Locke, Jefferson, Mill, Robert Menzies, emphasise that every individual has dignity and every individual must recognise the dignity in others. The doctrine of the individual is not a selfish doctrine. It's far from it. It says that if I matter, I must respect the fact that you matter and have dignity and worth as well. But again, once, so individualism should never be confused with selfishness. I think it's a really important point for us to understand and to make. But once analysis shifts from the individual to the collective, one's loyalty becomes monopolised by the collective. And ultimate loyalty is owed to the party that claims to represent the collective. In liberal democracy, you and I enjoy many loyalties to our families, to our consciences, to our beliefs, to our communities, to the country that we live in. And liberal democracy historically recognises multiple loyalties, as evidenced in the practice, for example, of allowing conscientious objection to participation in war. No such plurality of loyalties is permitted once the notion of individual dignity and rights is set aside in favour of the collective or the tribe. Now the second feature, identifiable feature of identity politics is that it sees our society as merely a theatre of struggle. Life is about struggle. All relations are power relations. I thought many of them were love or commitment or loyalty based, but no, according to this theory, they're all power relations. Everyone is either a victim or a victim maker, an oppressor. Now this is partly inspired, of course, by the Marxist analysis of relationships. It has to a large extent carried over to identity politics. In fact, I think you could probably say identity politics lies halfway between individualism and communistic collectivism. It is, in fact, tribalism. The third identifiable characteristic is a simple one. All inequality of outcome is because of discrimination. 
And Robin D'Angelo, perhaps the widest read purveyor of identity politics today, in her bestseller, it's sold some astonishing number of copies, White Fragility, puts it this way, if we truly believe that all humans are equal, then disparity of condition can only be the result of systemic discrimination. You can imagine the totalitarian state you would have to set up to ensure that everybody was absolutely equal in every possible way, including uh, the, the condition that they found themselves in. Fourthly, identity politics seeks to overthrow social conventions, institutions, rules and practices. The tearing down of statues is a powerful reflection of the determination to reject the notion of Western civilization. The grim determination to insist that gender is a social, not a biologically based construct, attacks the foundational place of science and of reason in our culture. As Edmund Burke said in reference to the French Revolution, rage and fury will pull down more in half an hour than prudence, deliberation and foresight can build up in a hundred years. The impact on our children can only be concerning as the new thinking strips away all the old verities and certainties and insists that we find our own new identity, each of us, in the new world by self-referencing, self-defining ourselves with, if I can put this delicately, if many have their way, not so much as a guide as to even whether we are male or female to be recorded on our birth certificate. And when it all proves too much for too many of our children, there's always someone present to relieve them of their anxieties by assuring them that their real problem is that they are a victim. We see too in the attack on language where ambivalence in language strikes me as the woke activist's best friend, as we face demands to use gender neutral pronouns while the very meaning of words are flipped so as to undermine the capacity for us to communicate and debate effectively with one another. Diversity turns out to really mean total uniformity of thought. Tolerance is eradicating traditional views. Love is punishing dissenters. Equality is one group dominating over the rest. Colorblindness is racist. And anti-racism turns out to be utterly and totally obsessed with race. The list goes on. The move to defund police in the United States provides a real insight into how wokeism is more about imposing an ideology than addressing real world needs. Despite the polling, which shows very clearly that Americans in general and African Americans in particular do not want less policing. Social justice reforms, so-called, to policing in New York and Minneapolis have resulted in nasty spikes in violent crimes. Who do you think the most vulnerable might be? Well, a hint as to who they might be is the most common calls to police for help by people worried about violence are African American women. Where are the real priorities for some of these woke activists? As commentator Oz Guinness has it, according to critical theory, the only factor that counts is power. 
Such an analysis is applied to all the categories of society in terms of gender, race, class and age. Once the victims are identified, they are to be weaponized, to be used in an assault on the status quo. That is not to say that there are not genuine victims. There are. But many genuine victims are overlooked as the protests mount and only the victims that are useful to the left are proclaimed. There's an ugly new dogmatism here which is strong on absolutes like sin, but is not universal sin anymore. It's just so-called white supremacist sin. Little prospect of any redemption or of forgiveness, how any relationship can work at any level in a marriage, in a family, in a community, in a nation without the capacity to forgive is ever offered by these people. And a culture that denies forgiveness and offers only condemnation or even in this media age, the prospect of cancellation for those who dare to transgress is a pretty ugly one. And when restitution and reconciliation are pursued without forgiveness, we face the very real prospect of a power conflict without end. And as Os Guinness points out, unless decisively checked, the result will be a backlash towards anarchy that will only reinforce a trend towards authoritarianism because extremes always reinforce one another in the end. This movement plays very strongly on the great importance that many of us, and particularly our young people, place on, empath on empathy. Who could deny that a black lives matter? Life matters. Who could deny uh, the idea of equality for women? But Canadian professor of psychology, Jordan Peterson, has often spoken profoundly on the mistake of transforming empathy for an important part of personal relationships into a justification for social policy. He warns us all, don't think an empathy culture will save you. You have to think, you can't just feel. Empathy is a fine value as far as it goes, but it can induce people to so identify with victims that it forces the retreat of rational analysis into both the actual claim of victimhood, uh, middle-class women or racial minorities in lucrative professions really oppressed? And whether the demands of the aggrieved are just or even good for the aggrieved person. Remember what I said earlier about defunding the police. In turn, because it tends so strongly to deny agency, the idea that people are responsible for their own actions and that an attempt to rescue somebody in a difficult situation requires often help, but also a stepping up by those who presumably hope to escape their victimhood. The victim is painted as someone not responsible, no matter how they have behaved for their plight, whether it's real or imagined. Undiscerning empathy often tends to make it harder, not easier to help real victims. And lest you think I'm sounding hard-hearted, I want to say to you it's incredibly important that we seek to be sympathetic to those who are in difficult situations, but sympathy may be a more valuable uh, value than, than uh, uh, empathy, because whilst it allows us to identify with and feel the hurt of others, it also lets us rationally assess their claims, and that may be a lot more helpful in the long run. 
But the other really serious problem with identity politics is on its emphasis on groups rather than individuals. This is a really important point indeed. A person becomes righteous or wicked based purely on which gender or racial group they belong to. We draw the lines of virtue, if you like, not somewhere across every human heart, but according to which group you belong to. As Jonathan Haidt says, we are teaching our children to believe that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, uh, weaker, I beg your pardon, uh, that uh, you should always trust your emotions, and that life is a battle between good people and bad people. Well, to say that a person becomes righteous or wicked based purely on which gender or racial group they belong to, I think is an extraordinarily dangerous idea. In the old days, in fact, we would have called it, and Martin Luther King would have called it too, racism, pure and simple. He wanted the colour of skin to be ignored. He wanted people to be judged on the content of their character, his children in particular. Nowadays, though, it's called social justice. Whole classes of the people then are cast as oppressors. The dividing line between good and evil is drawn between groups rather than somewhere across every human heart, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn had it. Identity politics can no more provide social unity than the historical injustices it claims to be solving. So, how do we find a better way forward? That's what matters. Perhaps we should begin with the oracle of Delphi's injunction to know thyself. Each of us, I think, needs to make sure that we're not sleepwalking in the midst of all of this. We need to recognise just how powerful and how pervasive identity politics has become. And we need to carefully assess the degree to which we are being ourselves seduced or intimidated or both into accepting its dangerous sirens. I'm sure you will have heard and I'm frankly often amazed by how often young people will say to me that they feel enormous pressure to be silent about what they really think and they often feel pressured to say things that they do not believe to be true. What a sad reflection on where we've allowed our society to go to. Secondly, we must again learn our own history. The new activists have been able to powerfully deploy their monstrously revisionist versions of history as their most powerful weapon because so few can see, let alone understand, how they're being manipulated. The powerful weapon we can turn back against them then is the full story of our own culture. But we have to know it. We have to understand it. We have to believe it. No one pretends that that history is perfect. But liberal democracy has been by far the most effective political structure for human flourishing and for the ending of oppression. It's very easy to say that Western civilization is barbaric and oppressive, but just consider a brief list. The origins of modern science and medicine, emphasis on universal human dignity, the rule of law, the abolition of slavery, the introduction of religious toleration, freedom of speech, unprecedented prosperity and lifespans, equality of opportunity, rise of modern democracy, individual rights and the vote for women, particularly in this country, universal education for all classes, technology making life much easier, abundance of food, I had to put that in, and guaranteed clean drinking water. The list goes on, that's not exhaustive. 
And I'm not saying that these good things are not found elsewhere, but all of them originally found their genesis and their fullest expression here in the West. With this list, I'm not trying to denigrate the rest of the world. I'm just trying to remind cynical Westerners, for that's what we've become, that much that they'd hopefully agree constitutes great progress was driven by Western civilization as it unfolded. Our own country story is quite powerful too. You know, we were founded with explicit instructions that there would be no slaves kept in Australia. Our colonies were some of the earliest modern democracies. We were the second place in the world to give women the vote after New Zealand. And actually the legalisation of the vote or the laws allowing for the vote in South Australia were passed before they were actually exercised in New Zealand. So it's a bit of a moot point as to who really got there first. Early introduction of a decent limit on hourly working uh, hours, uh, daily working hours and early nods towards decent living wages and an old age pension. And here's the point, here's the point. These were fought for and won because of our ideals. Human dignity, freedom, equality, not in spite of them. Thirdly, we must support all of those who are developing the weaponry to fight back. In Australia, our greatest risk, I want to put it to you, may not be so much an empathy culture as an apathy culture. Certainly we don't want to fight those battles with the acrimony and increasingly violent tribalisation that characterises the American culture wars. But at the same time, we don't want to just capitulate in the way that seems to increasingly frequently happen, I'll offend someone here I'm sure, in two countries that I dearly love, Canada and the UK. Our history and our situation is unique, but we need to engage and do it in a civilised but firm and Australian way. We must actively support those who are on the front line of the battle for the soul of our culture. And the Menzies Research Centre, I want to say to you, is one of them and a very important one. And I'm a huge admirer of uh, Paul, of what your team, Nick and the rest of the crew do. Keep it up. It's incredibly important. And to all of us, support it. Even in the past few days, Nick Cade has written brilliant defences of religious liberty, the foundational liberty actually of liberal democracy, against new laws emerging in that extraordinary place to the south of us. <laughs> to abandon the fight for religious liberty is to send a clear message to activists, to technocrats and to legislators, you can decide now what is most sacred for us. And I'm sorry, I don't want to live in a country where someone else decides what is most sacred for me. Let's also support existing institutions doing their best to teach the humanities in a more balanced way than they often are in the universities. I think particularly of the excellent work done at Campion College in Sydney and the potential for enormous and positive impact from the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilisation. But finally, let me conclude. We face another, perhaps to my way of thinking, even deeper problem than identity politics. It's the erosion of the foundations of belief in the human dignity that made Western progress possible in the first place. Recently, the historical foundations of Western progress have been eliminated by the, illuminated by the brilliant British historian Tom Holland in his best-selling book, Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind. He says this, if secular humanism derives not from reason or from science, 
but from the distinctive course of Christianity's evolution, a course that in the opinion of growing numbers in Europe and America has left God dead, then how are its values anything more than the shadow of a corpse? What are the foundations of its morality, if not a myth? And our very own Menzies, a man of towering intellect, an extraordinary capacity to communicate, I find myself so envious of his abilities, made a similar point, albeit more narrowly related to our commitment to democracy, when he said this, but a true conception of democracy goes even beyond this, for democracy is more than a machine, it is a spirit. It is based upon the Christian conception that there is in every human soul the spark of the divine, that with all their inequalities of mind and body, the soul of men stand equal in the sight of God. The chief end of the state becomes man, man the individual, man the immortal spirit. In our secularised and pluralistic society, it is not clear, in fact it's very unclear, what the foundation of our belief in human dignity is. Some of you may simply say that we believe in human dignity because it works. Look at the results, you would say. But the question is how long we can hold this belief, given the attacks upon it, without the faith that originally justified it. Perhaps we can, perhaps we can't. Again, my best thought is to remind us all to fairly study our own history. And I would contend that if we study it fairly, we'll be awestruck at the achievements of the West. We will see the incredible legacy of the dialogue between Christianity and the classical world, which is my definition of the Western tradition. Perhaps we'll also be curious enough to reconsider the truth of the theological propositions that undergirded our belief in human dignity and thus our commitment to democracy and freedom. And I conclude by saying this, if we do so, we'll be uncovering a tradition that at its best will be a far greater foundation for unity, justice and freedom than critical theory and its spawn identity politics could ever be. Thank you. You've been listening to John Anderson delivering the eighth John Howard Lecture, brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. If you'd like to be one of the growing group of people who think these podcasts deserve to be supported, you can become a subscriber from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org. I'm Nick Cater. Thank you for listening. Listening.